1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: This is Lily Gorin with the New Books Network, the New Books in Political Science podcast. Today I'm joined by Xenia Graf, who is the author of The Humanity of Universal Crime Inclusion, Inequality, and Intervention in International Political Thought. This was published in 2021 by Oxford University Press, and it is a sweeping exploration of our understanding of the terminology an implication of things like um, crimes against humanity and what those terms actually mean and how they actually function um, and some of the thinkers who have worked on those um, ideas as well. But I'd like to have Xenia tell us a bit more about that. I'd like to welcome Xenia Graf to the podcast and ask her to tell us a little bit about herself and how she came to this project.
1: Hi, Xenia. Hi, Lily. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure. Um, so, all right. So to start, well, two questions. Well, a little bit about myself. So um, presently, I work at the National University of Singapore as an assistant professor. I've been here for a while. I um, earned my doctoral degree from Cornell University, where I studied both in the government department and at the uh, law school. I uh, took a course in international law. So that's uh, that's my that's my formal background. The way I came to this project, I would like to describe perhaps in in more empirical terms, and then on the one hand, and then secondly, uh, on the other hand, in more scholarly terms. So empirically, I would say that, you know, by the time I arrived in graduate school, the International Criminal Court was only a few years old. It was founded in, or it came into operation in 2002. A few years later, I I started graduate school. And that was really an exciting time where sort of the international legal architecture or the, the normative architecture of international relations was really quite, was really reconceived by the presence of the International Criminal Court that came at the heel of other international criminal tribunals and international criminal law as opposed to international human rights law. International criminal law was a branch of international law that received quite a lot of attention at the time and crimes against humanity is one of the four international crimes that are prescribed under international law. So these four international crimes are crimes against humanity, war crimes, the crime of aggressive warfare, and the crime of genocide. So that was um, empirically happening at the time where sort of, you know, international human rights law was sort of getting a little old and international criminal law was becoming more interesting. It was practiced more in the international realm. And scholars also were beginning to take more uh, to pay more attention to it. That's the sort of the empirical circumstance that got me interested in questions of international criminal law as a political theorist. Then more scholarly speaking, and this is perhaps in the defense of the comprehensive exams that we have to go through as we are advancing to the thesis stage. So it was truly when I was studying for my A exam that, um, I was taking a course in international criminal law at the law school, but I was also reading Locke in the Second Treatise in preparation for my comprehensive exam in political theory. And I did notice that Locke in the Second Treatise, lo and behold, he speaks of a trespass against the species. And he means the human species. And I thought, wait a minute, this is something that sounds awfully like an offense against mankind. That sounds awfully like a crime against humanity. So wait a minute. I thought. And then from there on, the whole journey until I actually finally got something on paper, you know, years later actually, was like, okay, so human rights, very well explored in political philosophy, very well explored in political theory, very well explored in the history of political thought. That's true for human rights. That's not true for crimes against humanity. But the more I started exploring in early modern political thought, in 20th century international political theory, references to a mankind offended were everywhere references to a humanity collectively injured were everywhere especially in the liberal tradition and so I realized that was under uh, under analyzed and I thought I'd try my hand in it so that was the beginning Um, and
2: and this is what I also found as you point out sort of early in the book that like oh nobody's been paying attention to this. Um, not nobody, but it hasn't been, as you know, fairly well studied, particularly in comparison to other dimensions of international law and international political theory. Um, Mm -hmm. and so as soon as you said that it was like, duh. Um, (laughs) and then you take, you took me as the reader on a journey through thinking about it. Um, so I would like to ask you about the the sort of structure of the book because you do you do sort of start with Locke in a certain sense, yeah. um, but then you also have a kind of legal case study chapter, um, which I was really intrigued by. Um, because it's a little bit different. I mean, it, it is looking at the political theory, but it's a little bit different than sort of another political theorist, and then you get to Habermas. Um, so I was I was mm-hmm. um, sort of wondering about how you sort of trace this in a way that we might think about it in the history of political theory, the way that you set up what you are finding and also the examples of how we understand crimes against humanity, or as you start to use the term universal crimes.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you, Lily. Those are really good questions. Um, I like to be quite honest about the difficulties that I've had in my work, because I found it always very motivating when senior people have done that. And I've, it's really helped me develop my own work if, if people who are more senior than me admit to their difficulties. So in the spirit of that, if anybody's listening to this who's trying to conceive their thesis, figuring out the structure of first the thesis and figuring out the structure of the book was tremendously difficult. And um, I remember actually going for a swim at some point and, re- and thinking it's not going to work. So um, so it was tremendously difficult to do it, honestly. Um, so the way... Um, And it was difficult because I did have what I now realize were methodological leanings. I didn't know at the time that I had methodological preferences and uh, the historical story that I wanted to tell. So it was I needed to bring together a sort of a methodological approach to how to theorize universal crime and then how to plot this approach onto a coherent, more or less historical narrative. So... um, Perhaps I will start with the the historical narrative that I found in the end. So there, I have three chapters in the book. So, and those are chapters two, three, and four. So first, I start with Locke in the early modern um, uh, era. Then I move on to broadly conceived uh, the 19th century, especially the second half of the 19th century. Then I unfortunately have to take a break for the 20th century, and I join the party again after the Cold War in the late 20th century and the early 2000s. So that chronologically is how it works. Let me explain why that in the end was an okay structure for the book. So first of all, I realized in the early modern period, as European political thinkers were trying to figure out the normative dimensions or the layers of legitimacy and illegitimacy of the colonial project that they were trying to unfold the world over, and especially, of course, in the Americas. I noticed that these thinkers were drawing heavily on notions of humanity and therefore also heavily on notions of a humanity that stands collectively and universally injured, typically by the subject that will then later on be uh, be subject to colonial coercion and control. So there I realized that the um, the discourse of universal crime was really alive in the early modern um, era, in part perhaps because these theorists were trying to figure out, well, how come we are superior to these people whom we would like to govern the world over on a different continent? Like, how how is that? Right? So And of course, we know that political coercion never goes with just pure violence. It always comes with a layer of justification. And the discourse of universal crime was a very prominent and functioning uh, layer of justification for um, colonial expropriation and coercion so i realized that that was really lively in the early modern era then Locke there is my is my big guy because the second treatise really is full of references to universal crime and conveniently was a canonical figure and that uh that also helped i suppose to sort of get a little bit of attention and also to give um to give meat, so to speak, to the study. So that is, that's the point in, in saying, you know, the, this language was really conceived during the early modern European colonial project in order to negotiate the legitimacy or illegitimacy of colonial appropriation. Then the 19th century is a little bit strange. That's the third chapter. That's the one that didn't um, fit my expectations because the overall thrust of the book is like, all right, I look at how European political thinkers have used the discourse of universal crime, the vocabulary of universal crime, in order to justify coercive interventions in the non-European world. So that was sort of the um, the big spiel that I wanted to unfold historically, then the 19th century chapter three didn't fit. And that was really troublesome for a while. Because I realized in the in the 19th century, the discourse of universal Kram actually, it recedes. I wouldn't say it collapses, but it recedes. So and this was a conundrum for a long time, because the 19th century is the pinnacle of the European penet- uh, imperial penetration of the world. But at the same time, we don't see a parallel flourishing of the discourse of universal crime. On the contrary, it recedes, it becomes less prominent. And so there then I had to figure out why. Why does humanity become less popular in the 19th century, in the late 19th century in particular? And it becomes less popular because European international jurists and European international theorists, such as John Stuart Mill, such as Tocqueville, they discover what we now know as the discourse of civilization and ultimately of race and racism. And so there, um, European political theorists and jurists begin to, you know, conceive of questions about the legitimacy or illegitimacy of colonialism more in the vocabulary of civilization and racial difference. So the imagination of a humanity that's universally unified recedes in that time. So, and I try to explain um, why that is the case that humanity was less popular in the 19th century. So that's sort of, you know, that's sort of where the the, the curve goes down in the third in the third chapter. In the fourth chapter, Cold War is over. Um, it humanity emerges again. Universalism is back. Liberalism, of course, is also back uh, in in uh, in full throttle. And now, actually, at that time, so especially after the NATO's intervention in Kosovo, especially after uh, the genocide in Rwanda, we're beginning to actually to see the operation of international criminal tribunals. First in the wake of Rwanda, then in the wake of um, uh, the NATO intervention in Kosovo. So, and then international political theorists, especially liberal cosmopolitans, begin to actually work with the term of crimes against humanity. They mostly don't know what it is. They use it wrongly most of the time, which I find fascinating. I love that. That's actually really interesting to me. And so that's how I ended up theorizing. Um, uh, Liberal cosmopolitans in the late 20th century and the early 2000s, as they are trying to argue, oh, look, if there's crimes against humanity, then military intervention isn't really war. It's just police action it's okay. As long as we can prove there's a crime against humanity, then we're just policing. We're not really fighting wars against these people. We're still dropping bombs, but we're really more policemen. So that's brought me then to chapter four. So that is sort of the the rise, the prominence, the fall, and the rise again of the vocabulary of universal crime, early modern period, 19th century, and then after the end of the Cold War into the early 2000s. So that's the historical story. Then um, the theory that comes to it, that is I believe, chapter one. So that's what I call the political productivity of the notion of universal crime. I'm not sure if I've ever given an answer to this question that anybody found satisfactory at all, but what I've, what i am tried, and this is what I meant by, you know, I had, I had methodological um, preferences that for a long time I didn't have words for. So Political productivity of universal crime gave me a word for this, gave me a phrase for this. So what I'm really not interested in, in terms of crimes against humanity or universal crime is, oh, what's its content? Or what is humanity? What truly is the essence of humanity that can be offended universally? I'm not interested in any of that. Um, I'm interested in what political theorists actually do when they use notions of, politi- uh, of universal crime or of crimes against humanity. I'm curious what kinds of political or political problems universal crime solves for them. Like what do they desperately want to argue? And what does, is the role of crimes against humanity or universal crime that helps them make this argument? What's the political project they're negotiating? What are their political goals? And what are their underlying ideologies? So that I find really a lot more interesting from a political theory perspective, is how legal categories operate in non-legal discourses for political purposes. So that's what I found um, helpful in, you know, approaching the matter from a vantage point through a lens of political productivity. I should stop talking for a second. That's okay. Um, because that was, you
2: know, essentially, you covered a couple of the the questions that I wanted to ask, but I do want to get at because you, you explained the sort of crux of the of the undertaking really nicely in terms of like, why should we understand this terminology and what's, what's to some degree a little bit twisted about the terminology crimes against humanity. And as you say, also universal crimes, um, and who is in and out of that, that sort of umbrella of humanity and how does that work? Which chapter three sort of addresses a lot of like the parsing of that can you explain a little bit about why this term in particular, crimes against humanity, was kind of the flashpoint that drew you into this?
1: Yeah, sure. Yes, entirely. Yeah. Um, yes. Yeah. So, yeah, this goes to, to a question that I think is still at the heart of, of the book. is That is the question, what actually, or who is humanity? Where is humanity? How do we know when we see humanity? How do we know when we see inhumanity? And if you start looking in the literature, oftentimes they're really, and I try to describe this in the conclusion, oftentimes really, really famous and accomplished scholars, if they're jurists or international political theorists, they will just kind of say something like, oh, you know, we feel terrorized when we see crimes against humanity, or we feel our stomachs are turned, or we feel nauseated or shocked or something like that, right? So, but then, but, but then I mean, how, how do we know, how do we learn to be shocked by something rather than something else, right? Why are we shocked? by Srebrenica, but not by the Mediterranean, right? Why are we shocked by Libya, but not by, um, you know, uh, Frontex, for instance, or by the European uh, refugee uh, aggression? I mean, we shouldn't call it a crisis, yeah? So, um, So the question, you know, who is in and out of humanity? That was something that was very important for the book. And I found that the notion of universal crime always, at any moment, offers at least a minimal normative inclusion to the offender. And this is really something that only the notion of universal crime can do, because if we look at Schmidt's enemy of humanity, Schmidt goes against the universalism in politics because he says, once we have humanity in politics, then the enemy of humanity is an inhuman outsider, a monster, so and so forth. But criminality entails that the criminal is still a member of the normative order. The criminal is indeed a recognized, legally standing figure within a symbolic order of the law. So therefore, as long as we speak of a universal criminal, an offender against mankind, a criminal against humanity, that person is a member of humanity still. An undesirable member, a member that's subject to coercion, that's subject to punitive measures, that may be subject to discrimination, a reduction in rights. But the criminal against humanity is part and parcel of the community that is mankind, because. Criminality, again, is a recognized status within a political community. So that is somebody who is, um, who is included within um, humanity. But once we look more towards the 19th century, when really the, um, the civilized family or the, the family of civilized states becomes the subject of international law rather than mankind or humanity as the subject of universal natural law. Then we see that uh, questions of civilizational hierarchy or even uh, more importantly, questions of racial hierarchy uh, begin to sort of to create a hierarchy of mankind where the gradations are of quite a bit of a different quality, right? where sort of certain norms apply to civilized nations in in their relationships. Other norms apply to non-civilized nations in their relationships. So thereby, different exclusions and inclusions can be created by way of enmity and by criminality when we apply them to, um, to humanity. I could talk about this forever, so so let me take a break.
2: And, and in that regard, that was one of the points that I found that you really sort of teased out in, in the book because... The idea of who is and isn't in humanity also is really where we sort of lean into this question, or the question of racialization, is yeah. becomes really important. Not only in terms of the hierarchy, as you as you note that like there's the civilized and the uncivilized, but it becomes the sort of functional structure of our thinking about humanity. Um, mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about? How you sort of got into some of that discussion. I think this is particularly vibrant in chapter three.
1: Okay, yeah, sure, definitely. Um, so, inclusion to me was really quite important. So to be included within humanity is not necessarily something great, because to be included in humanity can also mean that you're included as a universal criminal who is then subject to coercion by outside parties, right? So inclusion isn't necessarily great. Um, other uh, scholars have already written about this, such as um, uh, Adam Getachow, uh, Jennifer Pitts, uh, Daniel Allen have already noted this, that inclusion can be a vehicle of domination. So exclusion isn't always the problem, and inclusion isn't always the solution. Yeah. So um, nonetheless, however, if we want to focus more on exclusion, then I think the 19th century teaches us that the international community or world politics can be conceived either in universalist terms of humanity or in more particularist terms such as civilizational different, uh, difference, civilizational familiarity or racial superiority. That's what I call in chapter three, the normative fracturing of humanity, the normative breaking apart of the otherwise universally conceived subject of humanity that can be the subject of a universal crime. But questions such as um, civilizational difference and racial hierarchy can break apart this claim normative unity of humanity. Again, claim normative hu- uh, unity of humanity isn't necessarily right? It contains a great deal of violence within it as well. Um, But that doesn't mean that exclusion from humanity is a solution to anything either. So it depends on whether we're conceiving of humanity as normatively unified or as normatively fractured by concepts such as civilization or race.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person go to shopify.com/system all lowercase to take your retail business to the next level today that's shopify.com/system
2: and in terms of the idea of universal crime in the way that we understand the, the sort of again, this concept of humanity being inclusion inclusionary. How do we understand this the, the sort of interplay between the inclusionary humanity and universal crime? Um, who's perpetrating the universal crimes?
1: Okay. Yeah, yes. This this took me this took me also a long time to figure out. Thank you, that thank you, Lily. That's a that's a that's a wonderful question. So let me try this. So in the book I work with the distinction between inclusive Eurocentrism and exclusive Eurocentrism. So here I actually try to correct something that Jennifer Pitts has argued in her uh, "Boundaries of the International," where she says, "Well, there is a turn to Eurocentrism in the 19th century in European political thought that wasn't quite there in the early modern period." So I differ with her on that point, and I say, "Well, no, the early modern period in, in political thought was also Eurocentric, just differently. So there's different kinds of Eurocentrism." Yeah. So and I argue that um, universal crime or crimes against humanity, by and large, has operated as a function of an inclusive Eurocentrism. Here's how that works. crime, A universal crime says, oh, this, that, and the other is a universal offense against mankind. Humanity as a whole stands injured by this act, by this type of act. So there is a universalist claim, but at the same time, this claim is Eurocentric because European political theorists are very good at picking, selectively picking out Actions that are typically not occurring in Europe, and they're actually tremendously self-conscious about this. Um, so much so that Vittoria, actually, in one of the in one of his lectures, so uh, Francisco de, de, de Vittoria, one of the really famous um, uh, uh, late Renaissance, um, uh, you know, theologians, who sort of is one of the darling children of uh political theory and empire scholarship and he says quite openly he's like oh no actually something like you know um uh what what is it i think adultery we cannot have adultery as a universal crime because then we would intervene within europe all the time so we so we cannot have something um that is really that is a Bad practice, but it's really common in Europe. We cannot have that as a universal crime because then France could inter- intervene in Italy and Italy could intervene and where else. So we cannot have that as a universal crime. So let's pick, that's what we're going to pick. Oh, cannibalism. Yeah, cannibalism is a universal crime, evidently, right? So because conveniently, that was fabled to occur only in the Americas, yeah? Or human sacrifice, you also said that. Human sacrifice, definitely universal crime, totally, doesn't happen in Europe, perfect, right? So um, so back to the question of inclusion and universalism. So, so I call, um, I say that universal crime Rests on notions of universal crime rest on an inclusive Eurocentrism because again the offender against humanity is included within humanity. But what do you offend against or she um, or they is something that is eurocentrically derived. Yeah, so some sort of notion that rests on a Eurocentric normative conception of the world. So that's what I try to say with um with this notion of inclusive Eurocentrism. Now Exclusive Eurocentrism, and this is where we get back to the 19th century and the question of civilizational hierarchy and, and uh, you know, arguments about racial superiority and inferiority. That's what I call an exclusive Eurocentrism, because there political thinkers and jurists, very importantly, jurists as well, begin to argue is like, well, um, you know, norms and laws and custom and... Um, and manners and issues like that—they only apply within the, civ- the community of civilized nations within Europe. So the the ambit of of valid norms that structure polit- politics, if you wish, they contract from the world to the to the European Community of civilized nations. So and then um, arguments cannot come, come up, such as oh, different parts of the world have different types of law of nations, different portions of the world have different sets of international laws. But so different you know different peoples are governed by different types of laws and that again is the sort of is the normative fracturing of humanity that i was mentioning earlier and i call that an exclusive eurocentrism because you know in its extreme form people in the 19th century were arguing oh only the europeans have law only the europeans have manners only the europeans have custom or refinement or culture even so and that's an exclusive eurocentrism that you know the rest of the world is kind of like relegated to some sort of realm of morality or ethics. And it's just, it's something that's not as good as international law or the law of nations. Yeah.
2: And, and so um, the, the final section of your, um, of your book and, and the, the sort of the move into the 20th and in late 20th century is to integrate Habermas, as you say, into the sort of post cold war period Um, and so what what is it that pulls that sort of framework forward, as you know, in terms of the International Criminal Court um, mm-hmm. and the sort of um, human rights and the Geneva Accords that all happen? Um, what is the move that that brings us from the sort of inclusive and exclusive Eurocentrism into this broader realm that happens and more or less after the cold war as well.
1: Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a good question. Again, again the the chapter on Habermas was incredibly difficult. I couldn't have written it if I had hadn't gone to this one lecture at the law school here at NUS at the National University of Singapore, and somebody gave a lecture on crisis harmonization, that whenever we study theory or ideology, we should look for crisis harmonization. And I had my chapter in that one moment. So um, Habermas himself went through a crisis um, during the um, uh, during the NATO intervention and, and then the Iraq war in 2003, where his the, the, po- the politics that he wanted to defend no longer made sense from his old political theory. So he needed something new, but that's a slightly different story. So in terms of Habermas in the early 2000s, the International Criminal Court, um, so what is the move there? So, so the important part, I think, about the fourth chapter is that in the in the late 1990s, and the early 2000s, liberal cosmopolitan theorists, both in the area of international political theory, but also in terms of um, international relations theory, begin to operate very, very, very often, very commonly with the term crimes against humanity. And what these cosmopolitans say is that, oh, international criminal law and crimes against humanity, those are cosmopolitan norms. Those are norms that indicate the transition to the transition from an international political order to a cosmopolitan world order where you know humanity stands at the forefront the individual perpetrator stands at the forefront it's no longer states between states against states but it is actually we can actually hold individuals to account in a court of law for having injured mankind so there's these very strong claims that oh yeah we are progressing thanks to international criminal law to a more cosmopolitan world order and again, many of them are using crimes against humanity wrong, but that's for a political theorists. that's very helpful to sort of to explore how legal categories operate and travel into other kinds of discourses. And the real problem there that I found in these kinds of theories and these kinds of arguments and Habermas also very prominently is that then they begin to argue and they say, oh, as I mentioned earlier, right? So, yeah, so humani- humanitarian intervention then, if we can argue that it responds to crimes against humanity, it's no longer warfare it's police action. And that really I think is an ideological distortion that seeks to overshadow the inherent and irreducible violence and coercion that is that comes with military action, right? So military action in and of itself, it's you know, it is not policing. I think that's also why we have such a big problem with the militarization of the police because policing Police action and military action ought to be two different things. And so the um the the elision between military action/slash warfare and policing in the name of humanity, I found very, very, very troubling. Because there then I suppose the um the normative appeal is, is supposed to be that, oh, you know, um the cosmopolitan soldier saves lives, defends humanity. Humanity must be defended. But the problem is. Quite quite commonsensically that the cosmopolitan soldier also takes life, not only risks their own life in in a fighter jet. I mean, typically we don't have ground troops, of course, in these kinds of operations. Not only in a fighter jet, but um, that the cosmopolitan sol- soldier saves lives, and that you know intervening, interrupting crimes against humanity is a good thing. So, but the problem is that the cosmopolitan sh- soldier also takes life, lives. Oftentimes, you know. Civilian lives, collateral damage—so-called collateral damage—in you know flying quotes um, is inevitable. Apparently, um, military action always produces collateral damage. And what I think the, the liberal cosmopolitans have done with you, using this twin language of crimes against humanity, global police action, is to sort of distract very loudly and hectically from the from the very conventional damages that come out of these kinds of military operations, right? To say, oh, it's just policing. It's not war. So there's a there's a sort of, there's a, you know, a distraction from the belligerency, so to speak, or a bellicosity of cosmopolitan thinking, right? So we, we're led to think that cosmopolitan is something like pacifism, but it really isn't. It really isn't. It's a belligerent cosmopolitanism that these people are advocating for. And that I found, found problematic. And it all happens sort of in the shadow of, The seemingly peaceful administration of law, the seemingly peaceful presence of the courtroom and the building in The Hague that is the ICC. But of course, the question is, you know, what is the what is the militant action that stands between, you know, a a crisis, a civil war and somebody who is then prosecuted in a courtroom? What stands between that is a military action and that produces losses of lives. So that to me was the big problem there in Chapter four. And, and so in, in that
2: regard, it's also the way that, as you note, the sort of how the, the, the political theorists, but also how policymakers are using the terminology, um, that the people who are sort of bringing charges against Milosevic or others, Mm -hmm. um, in criminal courts are saying that they committed crimes against humanity, um, E, and, and that these crimes against humanity also took place in this police context um, or okay. militarized context, um, but that that's, the notion is that they are responsible for those actions. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yes, entirely.
1: Yeah. International criminal law is distinguished by inscribing individual criminal responsibility directly under international law. So that's something that distinguishes the International Criminal Court from something like the International Court of Justice. That's the legal organ of the United Nations, where only states can engage each other in legal suits. But it's really the unique feature of international criminal law that individual persons can be put on trial for international crimes under international law. Yeah.
2: And, and how, I, I mean, this is my own ignorance, but to some degree. And you make you make reference to some of the complicated notions around how this was discussed at the Nuremberg trials. So I guess my question is, as somebody who is not well-versed in the vocabulary or its application, is how is the international criminal law application of, you know, the 2000s distinct from um, the way that the similar seeming laws and holding individuals responsible after the Nazi atrocities in Nuremberg? Like what is the Mm -hmm. distinction there?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Those questions are really, really, really interesting. They're really fascinating. Um, international criminal law is great as a, as a subject of study. I encourage everyone to go into it. It's really exciting. Um, so yes so nuremberg the nuremberg trials of uh, 1945 1946 ongoing then they um, they are a turning point in the history of international criminal law so the um, the statute of the of the Nuremberg trials codifies for the first time in, in most cases truly international crimes such as uh, the crime of aggressive warfare such as crimes against humanity and um, Not the crime of genocide. Actually, the crime of genocide did not uh, enter Nuremberg, uh, but also war crimes. So at the um, at the Nuremberg trials, these crimes are for the first time uh, codified in an international legal document, properly codified in an international legal document. There are several predecessors, um, but I would say this is the most strongest. Um, And individuals are put on trial as opposed to just shot on the battlefield. Yeah, which would have been the alternative. So, and then we have a number of developments until we have the International Criminal Court in 2002. So I'm happy to speak about um, sort of some of the definitional tensions that have befallen crimes against humanity over time. So for instance, um, one of the big debates, and again, sort of here we get to the exclusions that constitute crimes against humanity, essentially. Yeah. So if we for a moment turn away from what crimes against humanity prohibit, which are all terrible things, by the way. Yeah. I'm not saying that what crimes against humanity now are laws is somehow acceptable or OK. No, it's absolutely terrible. Um, so but that nonetheless uh, doesn't that doesn't prohibit the question. What is excluded from crimes against humanity? So at Nuremberg, a big debate, apparently, although we have no minutes and no evidence about this, was that Hirsch Lauterpacht, which was a very influential uh, jurist there in, um, in, in Nuremberg, a very influential jurist overall, said that, you know, we shouldn't only criminalize injuries to live and limb in crimes against humanity. We should also criminalize, you know, um, deprivation from property, deprivation of means of, you know, material means of survival. But that is not the crimes against humanity that we have today. The crimes against humanity that we have today, by and large, proscribe injuries to live and limb by and large, seek to preserve the physical integrity of the body. Um, uh, Also, however, criminalize uh, practices such as um, deportation, uh, displacement. um, Apartheid is a branch of crimes against humanity, for instance. So again, those are all terrible things, but what crimes against humanity really misses to this very day is the the prescription or is the criminalization of the deprivation of the material means of life. Property rights economic stability, food stability, uh, food security, environmental security. So for instance, corporate environmental destruction to this day has absolutely nothing to do with crimes against humanity, cannot be subsumed under crimes against humanity, completely excluded from the crime. And so um, what we, what we gain, I suppose, no, what we lose In a worldview that is so narrowly focused on crimes against humanity, as it is nowadays codified in international criminal law, as the Habermasians of the world are doing it, we're gaining a terribly narrow worldview of what is an atrocity against humanity, actually, right? Because environmental destruction isn't there. Um, Environmental poisoning isn't there. Uh, Starvation crisis, like food speculation policies aren't there. Um, Vaccination patents aren't aren't there right so in a sense it's a sort of it's a it's a crimes against humanity is like a magnet that has some sort of yeah it has some sort of magnetic effect of our attention not quite as genocide but similarly um and it leads us focusing on crimes against humanity basically leads us to overlook a whole number of deleterious conditions that take human lives by the masses but we don't look there anymore because crimes against humanity is this charismatic norm that structures so much of these discussions
2: and and you you pay attention to this in the at the uh, in the conclusion of the book in terms of thinking about um the anthropocene and and to some degree again the the assault on climate um and and how climate change is is inevitably going to be essentially displacing and killing and um, undermining the capacity of individuals to sustain themselves with food and shelter. Um, and how, how might that come into a discussion about um, crimes against humanity or universal crimes and, and how might um, universal organizations or global international organizations like the International Criminal Court come into that? Or is that just like not Mm going to happen?
1: (laughs) Well, um, well, as always, I'm happy to say the prospect is bleak. Um, so, um, so it is true that, um, so it is true that a number of, um, communities have tried to bring suits to international tribunals for corporate environmental destruction under the header of crimes against humanity is it is unfortunately impossible. It is impossible because of the formal structure of international criminal law. It is impossible because of the definition of crimes against humanity, as it is now codified in international criminal law. There was, however, for a while, um, say between the late 1990s or perhaps the 2000s, for a while, I forget now for how long, an international campaign headed by Polly Higgins, who recently passed away, unfortunately, in her 50s, very young, um, to include the crime of ecocide into the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court. The fact that this campaign to create an international crime of ecocide failed after many, many, many years. It was actually negotiated briefly in Rome in the, uh, during the deliberations for the Rome Statute. And then all of those, those negotiations collapsed. So I suppose that's not a bright sign for, for having something on the books such as ecocide. Um, that would be the, a, an obvious solution to address questions of climate change. I like to say climate destruction and or global heating rather than global warming, because, you know, I mean, things are getting dire. Um, there is a little bit of research on, um, oh yeah, there was recently a, um, a special issue. I believe in the Journal of Genocide Research on uh, climate change and genocide. So that might be a different venue, but Again, with all these kinds of attempts to connect crimes against humanity and, and climate destruction, genocide and climate destruction, it's at best, climate destruction is at best subsidiary to the dominant international crime as it's now on the books. And that's, I, I don't think that will change. On, I mean, again, uh, it's good to be pessimist, I find, um, but because then you're off, sometimes you're pleasantly surprised as opposed to the other way around. Um, so I think, I honestly think it's it's international criminal doesn't lend itself easily towards Uh, The protection of the climate. Yeah. And, and so the framework itself is
2: not something that, that really can indicate who might be responsible if we're all responsible also, Um, or, you know, some of us more than others, perhaps.
1: Um, yes, that's right. Yeah, the question of agency is, is is a big question. So I think this is typically something that um, I think normative political philosophers, analytical philosophers like to tackle. Um, so I'm, I'm not terribly familiar with those debates. Um, again, I've learned that one should always say if one doesn't know something and that that is, <laughs> that is emancipatory. So I don't know very much about these debates which happen uh, in, in an analytical literature. But I mean, I think we all remember, or maybe some of us remember when, you know, when COVID was... In its early phase and planes weren't flying, where the oil price for the first time in history actually fell below zero in recorded history, anyways. So oil is useless without consumption. Yeah. So that's the question. I mean, is the producer at fault? Is the consumer at fault? So um, so those are all questions that I think law and criminal law is very poorly equipped to to deal with. So those are those are really difficult questions. And and so
2: in that regard, what difficult questions are you working on now?
1: Oh, indeed. Um, oh, I, 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 did, or I have to finish. I should say because one we'll never finishes this, this one. Um, a paper on actually on crimes against humanity and and corporate environmental destruction. Um, and it's sort of it's it's a grand meditation about how there's really no overlap, where there's there's truly no no features. So that paper looks a little bit more at the black letter law of crimes against humanity, which is great if you have sort of you know a little bit of like a nerdy feature for jurisprudence. Um, so I'm bringing that to a close. My my next project that I'm going to look at. Is of course related to to, to my first book, um, but I'm taking it into a slightly different direction. So what I'm maintaining from the first project is a critique of the universal, because that's a very traditional thing to do, and it's good to it's it's good to have some tradition in one's life. I feel so, and so I will continue to critique the universal. Um, but what I'm looking at, what I want to look at, is the following. So Germany, I'm German, by the way, and I feel like now I'm old enough to finally work on the Germans as well. So the Germans have. Um, prosecuted a number of Syrian nationals for crimes against humanity under universal jurisdiction in Germany. So there are these universal jurisdiction trials uh, going on against Syrian nationals for things that they may or may not have done during the Syrian war. So that, I think has a lot to do with Germany's construction of itself, of its foreign policy identity as, you know, a champion of human rights, a champion of um, global justice, a champion of international cooperation, all of which, of course, is a sort of a um, post-Holocaust, 180-degree turn kind of effort at presenting Germany as really, yeah, again, a champion of international law and a champion of international cooperation. At the same time, the German government continues to deny its colonial genocides it has some nice diplomatic discourses uh, on the books of saying, "Oh yeah, we do have a special responsibility to Namibia." Um, oh, but no, we didn't commit genocide against the the Heriber peoples and the Nama people. No, 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 we didn't. We did not do that. No, we're not going to apologize. No, we're not going to acknowledge that. But we do have a special responsibility to to Namibia. Now, where it gets really interesting is, and I have uh, read some of these documents. Um, you may have seen this that some. Uh, herero and nama people have tried to uh, file suits in new york district courts against the german government it's actually not a criminal suit because that's not possible so it's a civil suit and i read some of the documents that the german foreign office sent to the new york district court to reject all these claims and it couldn't be in greater contradiction to the official discourse like oh we have a special responsibility you know we will always commemorate uh you know the herero and the nama it is just completely it's like we have nothing to do with this this was in line with international law at the time. This was in line with uh, German colonial law at the time. German colonialism, this was completely within the ambit of German colonialism. Everything's fine. We, we're not responding to this trial. You know, so, um, so basically, so I'm looking at the disavowal of German colonial genocides and in the same framework with how German courts now are trying to really bring into the light of the world crimes against humanity in Syria. So it's this kind of deflection, this kind of double movement, both of which pivots on questions of interpretations of international law, colonial international law, as it was at the time, um, or nowadays universal jurisdiction as the German state is using it to put these Syrian nationals on trial for all these horrible things that they may or may not have done. So that's the next project um, that's coming up. So, yeah, we'll, we'll see would, how it goes. I would love to talk to you about that book
2: once you finish it, because it sounds really fascinating in terms of all of the the different pieces of rhetoric mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. embedded in the documents and yeah, and sort of self-conception. Yeah. Um, so I, I look forward to reading that. Um, thank you for joining me today, Zinnia, uh, no, to thank talk you about... The Humanity of Universal Crime, Inclusion, Inequality, and Intervention in International Political Thought. Somebody at Oxford University Press really liked alliteration with regard to your title.
1: Um, Yeah, I I may have suggested it.
2: (laughs) I yeah, like alliteration too. I was just intrigued by all the eyes that are included in the title. Um, all one, eyes on the title. <laughs> all eyes on the title. Exactly, um, and the beautiful cover that you also make note of. I think in the acknowledgments. Um, yeah. And Oxford University Press published this in 2021. I assume one can purchase it at Oxford University Press. Um, yes. I don't know if there is a brick and mortar store with a online presence to which you would like to give a shout out if not that is also okay i'm behind on the game that's fine we'll just send people to oxford university press or to bookshop which you know supports independent booksellers um to buy a copy of uh, Zinya graf's book on the humanity of universal crime thank you for joining me today
1: thank you for having me lily have a good day